Israel's policy is a policy of extermination and genocide. They are killing everybody in Gaza. 30 Palestinian journalists. Not only are they committing genocide against us, but they are preventing us from being able to tell that to the world. Homes, bakeries, mosques, schools, all civilian areas continue to be bombarded. Yara Eid's family in Gaza. She lost over 40 individuals from her family. My own family, my cousin's wife, lost over 40 individuals from her own family. Airstrikes are hitting family homes. UN has said that it's a graveyard for children. Over 800 Palestinian families completely erased from the civil registry. Gaza is an extermination camp. They don't have water. People are all drinking unclean water. They're getting sick. They're getting stomach viruses. Can Palestinians actually leave Gaza? No, they can't. The Israelis bombed the Rafah crossing due to Israel's brutal siege. Palestinians do not have the appropriate equipment to dig out their loved ones. And many families are still trapped under the rubble. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you are committing a genocide and somehow claiming to be the victim. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional podcast called the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. Things will never be the same. We can never go back to the status quo. We are facing extermination as a people. We are currently undergoing a genocide. This is not an exaggeration. In fact, the reality of what's happening is actually much worse than the legal definition of genocide. The response from the world has not even been wholly inadequate. That's not even the correct framing at all. It has been criminal. It has been supportive of the genocide. It has, it has allowed Israel to carry out the genocide. It has stood by watching, giving carte blanche, totally distorting, completely manipulating and obfuscating the reality of what's happening to Palestinians on the ground. The reality is so, so, so different than what they're telling you. And we know that because our families are living it. Oh my God, every day I have stories that, that, that I could fill a notebook with from, from family and friends back home. And then the next day they're replaced with even more horrific stories that are a hundred times worse in terms of the torture that they're inflicting on all of Gaza's people. And I can't keep up. I can't keep up. I mean, just yesterday, just yesterday, we were mourning the fact our family friend's house was hit by an airstrike and my friend's cousin and his kids and his parents were under the rubble and they were trying to determine whether or not anybody was still alive. My friend's cousin's brothers went to the side of the house to start digging with their hands. And as they were digging with their hands, trying to see if they could rescue their brother, Israel hit another airstrike. Um, the rubble of their home that they had already destroyed in an airstrike a few hours prior, killing the brothers. And now my friend has lost three of her cousins, their parents, and several children as well. 
And that was just what happened yesterday. That's just what happened between yesterday and today, the time that we're sitting down to record this. Going back even a month ago to the beginning of this aggression, it seems like it was years ago, but a month ago we had similar stories and they seem so distant in time because they keep getting replaced. New horrors every single day. All I'm trying to do is write all of this down, document all of this, create a record of this, put this online, put this for people to see. Because the media is not telling them this. The corporate media is not telling them this. The corporate media is regurgitating Zionist military copy. I saw an interview yesterday with Noura Harakat on BBC. Interviewing was criminal. It was criminal. Noura very clearly stated that what was happening was genocide and met the legal definition of genocide under the Genocide Convention and all relevant international legal texts. And the reporter's response was to say, well, the Israelis deny that they're committing genocide. They would say that they told people to leave. To which Noura replied, ma'am, no country that has ever been found guilty of committing genocide has ever admitted in the moment that they were committing genocide. Apply scrutiny, do your job. Why are you not doing your job? Your job as a journalist is to discover the truth, is not just to take what the Zionist military position is and to state it as fact. It's to apply scrutiny to see if it actually meets the smell test. Does it pass the smell test? Is it true? Or is it a complete fabrication? She said, oh, well, they told them to leave. Well, on the point that they told them to leave, do you know how easy it would have been to, to dismantle that entire proposition? All she had to do was ask two follow-up questions. It didn't require an investigation. It didn't require uh, analysis and investigative journalists. All it required is asking two questions. Are the areas where the Israeli military told them to go in Gaza safe? And the answer to that is a clear resounding no, because we have seen day in and day out for the last 30 days that homes, bakeries, mosques, schools, all civilian areas that are deeply crowded in the South continue to be bombarded indiscriminately, incessantly, without interruption. The Nusayrat refugee camp is in the South. Look at Ion Palestine. Look at Ion Palestine. There are dozens and dozens of images and photos and videos of families being pulled out of the, out of the rubble from their homes at Khan Yunis. That's in the South. Families' homes are being targeted by Israeli airstrikes every single day in the South. There is no respite in the South but yet these are the areas where they were told to go for safety. There's no safety in the South. In fact, there have been numerous cases of families who not only were killed in Israeli airstrikes on the so-called safe routes, the roads from the North to the South, as they heeded the call by the Israeli occupation army to travel from their homes in the North to the South to evacuate, to, to use a very poor term that describes the, the reality of what they're living, and there's also cases of families who were expelled from their homes in the north, went to find somewhere to stay in the south, whether a family member's house or a school or whatever it may be, and they were killed in airstrikes on those homes in the south. These stories are everywhere. You just have to open your eyes and look. Palestinians are telling you what is happening to them. Number two, can Palestinians actually leave Gaza? No, they can't. There have been Almost no Palestinians that were able to leave Gaza whatsoever for the first couple of weeks of this aggression, the Israelis bombed the Rafah crossing day after day. They bombed it day after day. For the first several weeks, not a single soul was permitted to exit Gaza while the indiscriminate bombardment fell all around them. And finally, once they allowed a small number of people to start trickling out of Rafah. It was only people with foreign passports 
The majority of the Palestinians in Gaza do not have foreign passports. The majority of them are stateless because of the original injustice that this goes back to, that they built a country on our land and they excluded us from it. So no, it's not enough to say that the Israelis told us to leave. It's not enough to, 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 to just state that and move on with your business. You're not, you're not a journalist when you do that. You're complicit in genocide. You're covering up their crimes for them when it's clear for the world to see what is happening. Listen to the Palestinians themselves. In the last month, we've seen the emergence of Palestinian citizen journalists who are the ages of 20, 21, 22, or individuals that, that some, of, some of whom we knew and they're friends of ours and some of whom came up in, in this aggression as the leading voices from Gaza, documenting everything that is happening showing you that, that the Israelis are targeting houses. They're targeting family houses. The airstrikes are hitting family homes. That is why we have now seen over 800 Palestinian families be completely erased from the civil registry. That statistic is outdated. That was from last week. It's probably reached over a thousand by now. Those, those families don't exist anymore. Their family names have stopped in Palestinian history. They stopped in 2023. Why? because the entire family was together in their home. The airstrike hit the family's house and they were all buried under the rubble, either killed instantly or suffered a torturous death by suffocating and starving to death and being dehydrated to death for days under the rubble until they finally passed. If they have even passed, some of, some of whom are still probably under the rubble alive right now with no means to get them out. That's who they're targeting. Joe Gaza 93 on Instagram has been essential in making it very clear to us that the Israelis are targeting families' houses. Because every time there's an airstrike, he posts which family's house was targeted, how many individuals were martyred, and we have been working day and night to repost that, to, to inform people. And you know what? People have messaged me and said, I actually found out that my family's house was targeted through your and Joe's posting. We just found out that our family's house was hit because they can't contact their family members anymore and they're not responding. And so the, all they can do is wait until it's announced that their family's house was in fact hit by an airstrike. In the last month, we have seen the Israeli apartheid regime accelerate its plans to exterminate the Palestinian people, plans which were commenced in 1948 and even before then, during the Nakba of that time, plans which were ongoing and have never ceased for one moment throughout our 75-year history of Zionist colonialism in our land. Plans which now have reached a, a, a level, a magnitude, a scope, which is burning our hearts in the urgency that it requires states and individuals and organizations to respond to. They have killed over 10,000 Palestinians, and that number is on the very, very low side because that number is only the individuals who were pulled from the rubble and who were buried. Keeping in mind that Palestinians, due to Israel's brutal siege, do not have the appropriate equipment or machinery to be able to dig out their loved ones. And many, many, many people, many families are still trapped under the rubble. We don't have a full account of the individuals who were killed in this aggression. 10,000 is on the extremely conservative side at this point in time. At this point in time, over 
4,200 of those 10,000 were Palestinian babies and children. And I want us to sit with that number and understand the scope of the, of the loss, the magnitude of the desperation, the magnitude of the brutality. We are losing, we are, we are running out of ways to explain to you how dire the situation is. Every day I see new formulations of it. Like Israel killed more Palestinian children in one month than were killed in a year in Ukraine. The world has not seen this level of depravity and cruelty in a very long time. One child is too much. Over 4,200 in one month, we have all their names. We have all their photos. We know exactly who they are. Yara Eid's family in Gaza. She lost over 40 individuals from her family in multiple airstrikes on the Eid family houses. 17 of them were children. 17 children from her family. Leila Haddad, who was also on the Palestine pod, lost multiple individuals from her family. My own family, my cousin's wife, lost over 40 individuals from her own family. Multiple members of my extended family have, have now been killed in airstrikes. And also families who have married into my family. Multiple members have been killed in airstrikes. At the same time, we see a US government which has repeatedly told us that they will not impose red lines on Israel. And not only was this statement made towards the end of October, but it was confirmed and reiterated November 7th by the United States when a journalist asked John Kirby, sorry, I want to get his title. When a journalist asked John Kirby whether it still remained true that the US would not be drawing any red lines for Israel. And he confirmed that that is true. But that's actually just because they don't know how to draw within the lines. Oh my God, they're just the criminality. I can't even, I'm trying to like respond in a funny way and I can't even bring myself to do it. Um, oh no, you don't, don't you worry about being funny this one. That's kind of on me. Yours is the other stuff. I want to be very clear. Not only is what is happening genocide, but it far, far exceeds genocide under the legal definition of genocide. And that by the time that this episode has aired, multiple complaints will have been brought forward to the International Criminal Court by attorneys representing individuals, victims, citizens of conscience, organizations, NGOs, worldwide, one of which that I'm involved with, another one that I'm aware of, and others still, I'm sure, are being organized and brought. And the aim of these complaints is to call on the International Criminal Court to investigate Israel for the crime against humanity of genocide and incitement to genocide, amongst others. It should be an extremely short investigation. And to, importantly, call on them to issue arrest warrants to the Israeli officials who are involved in carrying out this genocide. Now, I want to make it very clear to our listeners what the legal definition of genocide is and why what we're seeing here is exactly that. Now, before I do that, I just want to say that even in the early days of this aggression, the Center for Constitutional Rights published a 44-page legal opinion stating that what was happening 
in Gaza was genocide unfolding and that the U.S. was complicit in it. And that was maybe a week or two weeks into the aggression, and now we're past day 30. So you can see that the criminality has only been allowed to, to multiply in scope. I also wish to point to the, to the statement of the Holocaust and genocide Jewish scholar, Raz Siegel, also in the early days of this aggression, commented that what was unfolding in Gaza was, quote, a textbook case of genocide. This is an analysis that is being made increasingly. In fact, we've also seen in the last couple of days and weeks resignations by individuals in very high positions due to precisely the fact that the world was not stepping up to intervene to prevent genocide happening in Gaza. It took days for the ICC prosecutor to show up in Ukraine and charge Russia with crimes against humanity before the ICC. And now we are in past week four of this aggression when many, many, many more Palestinians have been killed. The UN has said that it's a graveyard for children. I mean, can you imagine a graveyard for children? Gaza has become a graveyard for children according to the UN. And the ICC prosecutor has still not moved, has still not made any public statement about actions that it's going to take. I heard that the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court did want to be there sooner. He was just worried that they would bomb the car he was in. The actions of these individuals, the lawyers, the organizations, the people who are now petitioning the ICC to begin this investigation, to charge Israel with these crimes and to arrest Israeli officials is so essential in this moment. And the ICC must act with urgency because if it does not, the entire international legal system is completely at risk of being rendered totally obsolete, ineffective and irrelevant. If in the face of clear genocide, the international community cannot band together and stop it from happening, then the entire international humanitarian law framework that was developed post-World War II for the purpose of preventing exactly these crimes from taking place has failed to achieve the singular purpose for which it was developed, rendering it completely irrelevant and obsolete. And if that is the message that we want to send to the world, that there is no way for us to protect you from genocide, because Israel can do it and can get away with it. They can kill 4,200 children while they're sleeping in their homes in airstrikes. They can say, their officials can say that the purpose of this is not on accuracy. We're not trying to be accurate. That is a direct quote from them. They said the purpose of these strikes is not accuracy, it's destruction. Israeli officials have in the last month gone on multiple media programs and made statements in the press that have gone on record that are burned into history, insisting that there are no civilians in Gaza, that there is no difference between an ordinary person living in Gaza and Hamas, essentially saying that they are not going to be making any distinction in who they are targeting. They're not targeting Hamas. They've told us they're not targeting Hamas. They've told us they're targeting all of Palestinian society in Gaza. They've told us they don't consider there to be civilians in Gaza. Multiple Israeli officials, journalists, professors, members of the military, the highest levels of heads of state have told us that Palestinians are human animals, 
And then they've come out and said, no, we're actually inhuman animals. And then the same individuals have come out later and said, no, it, it's, it's actually an insult to animals to consider Palestinians animals. They've referred to us as beastly people. They've cut off all food, water, fuel, electricity, choking Gaza beyond the 16-year siege that has already choked Gaza. Gaza is an extermination camp. The language that we previously used to use referring to Gaza as an open-air prison is no longer sufficient. Gaza is a place where everybody now is being killed and, and condemned to premature death, whether by starvation or dehydration or airstrikes or succumbing to your injuries because you're not able to be properly treated after being injured in an airstrike. Everything is on the table. I've seen images of newborns who have lost pounds in the last month because they, they don't have access to formula because the mothers aren't able to produce milk because they don't have water. People are all drinking unclean water. They're getting sick. They're getting stomach viruses. Doctors are reporting that in the wounds that are being created from the shrapnel, the burning shrapnel that is cutting open our families' bodies, that now they're seeing worms because they don't have proper equipment or, or, or material to disinfect the wounds. Dr. Hassan Abu Sitta, who's working in Al Shifa Hospital, a doctor volunteer, a trauma surgeon volunteer with Doctors Without Borders, was in disinfecting wounds with vinegar that he purchased from the corner shop because of the Israeli siege banning medical equipments and materials into Gaza. Israel's policy is a policy of extermination and genocide. They are killing everybody in Gaza. It is not sufficient to speak of over 10,000 killed and over 25,000 who have been injured in airstrikes. Everybody is being killed. My own family has not eaten or drank properly in days. They have gotten to the point where if there is clean water, they're just giving it to the children and the adults are not drinking or they're drinking dirty water. The mom's cousin told her that they were making bread. They were making the dough for bread from sewage water. There's no water. There's no clean water. How long can a society survive, a society of over 2.2 million people, 1 million of whom are children, with no water? Israel bombed a shipment of water that was coming in. They bombed the solar panels on top of Al Shifa Hospital. They have bombed hospitals day after day after day. They bombed the pediatric cancer ward of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, a pediatric children's hospital. They bombed Al Nasser Hospital, where Joe Gaza works. It's a children's hospital. He works there in the pediatric intensive care unit. They bombed that hospital and killed individuals who were there for treatment, children. They have bombed health infrastructure after health infrastructure. And nobody has said anything. And in fact, the only hoopla was over whether they were the ones who carried out the massacre at the Al-Ahli hospital after they admitted it and then denied it. And then every single day after that, continued to bomb hospitals. They bombed the only eye treatment center in Gaza. They bombed the only psychiatric center in Gaza. They bombed multiple ambulances killing paramedics. They bombed multiple physicians while they were sleeping and they killed them with their families. The number of physicians and health workers who were killed is astounding. It's over 60 the last time I checked. Physicians are actually standing in the halls of the hospitals and seeing their own family members be wheeled into the hospitals because their family members are being targeted while they're working at the hospitals. Israel has killed over 30 journalists, 30 Palestinian journalists. I want you to understand that not only are they committing genocide against us, but they are preventing us 
from being able to tell that to the world by killing the only voices in this world who are reporting on what is happening because Israel doesn't allow foreign reporters into Gaza. So you're not, you're not getting that from the corporate media. You're only getting that from the citizen journalists who are taking to social media and who are showing you what is happening day in and day out. And one by one, Israel is killing them with their families. They killed Wa'al Dahdouf's entire family while they slept. And the very next day he was back out reporting. They've killed multiple Palestinian journalists. In fact, Reporters Without Borders has also filed its own complaint to the International Criminal Court, calling on the court to investigate Israel's war crimes and killing and targeting journalists. Israel itself told multiple journalistic outlets that they cannot guarantee the safety of any of those correspondents who are operating in Gaza. They've warned them. They said, we can't guarantee their safety. In other words, we're going to kill them. Just letting you know. We've warned you. BBC is like, they warned you. I want to go back to the resignation of a top UN official, Craig Mohiber, the director of the human rights body, who accused the US, the UK, and much of Europe as wholly complicit in this horrific assault and said that he is leaving his post in protest to the UN's failure in its duty to prevent genocide of Palestinian civilians in Gaza. He wrote this statement on October 28th to the High Commissioner of the United Nations in Geneva, Volker Turk, saying that this will be my last communication to you. And I want to read the statement because it's incredibly powerful and it really acutely summarizes the situation that we are dealing with today. I write at a moment of great anguish for the world, including for many of our colleagues. Once again, we are seeing a genocide unfolding before our eyes. And the organization that we serve appears powerless to stop it. As someone who has investigated human rights in Palestine since the 1980s, lived in Gaza as a UN human rights advisor in the 1990s, and carried out several human rights missions to the country before and since, this is deeply personal to me. I also worked in these halls through the genocides against the Tutsis, Bosnian Muslims, the Yazidi, and the Rohingya. In each case, when the dust settled and the horrors that had been perpetrated against the defenseless civilian populations, it became painfully clear that we had failed in our duty to meet the imperatives of prevention of mass atrocities and prevention of the vulnerable and of accountability for perpetrators. And so it has been with successive waves of murder and persecution against the Palestinians throughout the entire life of the UN. High Commissioner, we are failing again. As a human rights lawyer with more than three decades of experience in the field, I know well that the concept of genocide has often been subject to political abuse. But the current wholesale slaughter of Palestinian people rooted in the ethno-nationalist settler colonial ideology in continuation of decades of their systematic persecution and purging based entirely upon their status as Arabs and coupled with explicit statements of intent by leaders in the Israeli government and military leaves no room for doubt or debate. In Gaza, civilian homes, schools, churches, mosques, and medical institutions are wantonly attacked as thousands of civilians are massacred. In the West Bank, including occupied Jerusalem, homes are seized and reassigned based entirely on race, and violent settler pogroms are accompanied by Israeli military units. Across the land, apartheid rules. This is a textbook case of genocide. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project in Palestine has entered its final phase towards the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine. What's more, the governments of the United States, the United Kingdom, and much of Europe are wholly complicit in this horrific assault. 
Not only are these governments refusing to meet their treaty obligations to ensure respect for the Geneva Conventions, but they are in fact actively arming the assault, providing economic and intelligence support and providing political and diplomatic cover for Israel's atrocities. In concert with this, the Western corporate media increasingly captured and state adjacent are in open breach of Article 20 of the ICCPR, continuously dehumanizing Palestinians to facilitate the genocide and broadcasting propaganda for war and advocacy of national, racial, or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, and violence. U.S.-based social media companies are suppressing the voices of human rights defenders while amplifying pro-Israel propaganda. Israel lobby online trolls and gongos are harassing and smearing human rights defenders and Western universities and employers are collaborating with them to punish those who dare to speak out against the atrocities. In the wake of this genocide, there must be an accounting for these actors as well, just as there was for Radio Mills, Collins in Rwanda. In such circumstances, the demands on our organization for principled and effective action are greater than ever, but we have not met the challenge. The protective enforcement power Security Council has again been blocked by U.S. intransigence. The SG is under assault for the mildest of protestations, and our human rights mechanisms are under sustained slanderous attack by an organized online impunity network. Decades of distraction by the illusory and largely disingenuous promises of Oslo have diverted the organization from its core duty to defend international law, international human rights, and the charter itself. The mantra of the two-state solution has become an open joke in the corridors of the UN, both for its utter impossibility, in fact, and for its total failure to account for the inalienable human rights of the Palestinian people. The so-called quartet has become nothing more than a fig leaf for inaction and for subservience to a brutal status quo. The U.S. scripted deference to agreements between the parties themselves in place of international law was always a transparent sleight of hand designed to reinforce the power of Israel over the rights of occupied and dispossessed Palestinians. High Commissioner, I came to this organization first in the 1980s because I found it in a principled, norm-based institution that was squarely on the side of human rights, including in cases where the powerful US, UK, and Europe were not on our side. While my own government, its subsidiary institutions, and much of the US media were still supporting or justifying South African apartheid, Israeli oppression, and Central American death squads, the UN was standing up for the oppressed peoples of those lands. We had international law on our side. We had human rights on our side. We had principle on our side. Our authority was rooted in our integrity, but no more. In recent decades, key parts of the UN have surrendered to the power of the US and to fear of the Israel lobby to abandon these principles and to retreat from international law itself. We have lost a lot in this abandonment, not least our own global credibility. But the Palestinian people have sustained the biggest losses as a result of our failures. It is a stunning historic irony that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in the same year as the Nakba was perpetrated against the Palestinian people. As we commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we would do well to abandon the old cliche that it was born out of the atrocities that preceded it, and to admit that it was born alongside one of the most atrocious genocides of the 20th century, that of the destruction of Palestine. In some sense, the framers were promising human rights to everyone except the Palestinian people. And let us remember as well that the UN itself carries the original sin of helping facilitate the dispossession of the Palestinian people by ratifying the European settler colonial project that seized Palestinian land and turned it over to the colonists. We have much for which to atone, but the path to atonement is clear. We have much to learn from the principled stance taken in cities around the world in recent days as masses of people stand up against genocide, even at risk of beatings and arrest. 
Palestinians and their allies, human rights defenders of every stripe, Christian and Muslim organizations and progressive Jewish voices saying not in our name are all leading the way. All we have to do is follow them. Yesterday, just a few blocks from here, New York's Grand Central Station was completely taken over by thousands of Jewish human rights defenders standing in solidarity with the Palestinian people and demanding an end to Israeli tyranny, many risking arrest in the process. In doing so, they stripped away in an instant the Israeli Hasbara propaganda point, an old anti-Semitic trope that Israel somehow represents the Jewish people. It does not. And as such, Israel is solely responsible for its crimes. On this point, it bears repeating, in spite of Israel lobby smears to the contrary, that criticism of Israel's human rights violations is not anti-Semitic, any more than criticism of Saudi violations is Islamophobic, criticism of Myanmar violations is anti-Buddhist, or criticism of Indian violations is anti-Hindu. When they seek to silence us with smears, we must raise our voice, not lower it. I trust you will agree, High Commissioner, that this is what speaking truth to power is all about. But I also find hope in those parts of the UN that have refused to compromise the organization's human rights principles in spite of enormous pressures to do so. Our independent special rapporteurs, commissions of inquiry and treaty body experts alongside most of our staff have continued to stand up for the human rights of the Palestinian people, even as other parts of the UN, even at the highest levels, have shamefully bowed their heads to power. As the custodians of the human rights norms and standards, OHCHR has a particular duty to defend those standards. Our job, I believe, is to make our voice heard from the Secretary General to the newest UN recruit and horizontally across the wider UN system, insisting that the human rights of the Palestinian people are not up for debate, negotiation, or compromise anywhere. What then would a UN norm-based position look like? For what we would work if we were true to our rhetorical admonitions about human rights and equality for all, accountability for perpetrators, redress for victims, protection of the vulnerable, and empowerment for rights holders, all under the rule of law. The answer, I believe, is simple. If we have the clarity to see beyond the propaganda and the smoke streams that distort the vision of justice to which we are sworn, the courage to abandon fear and deference to powerful states, and the will to truly take up the banner of human rights and peace. To be sure, this is a long-term project and a steep climb, but we must begin now our surrender to unspeakable horror. I see 10 essential points. First, legitimate action. We in the UN must abandon the failed and largely disingenuous Oslo paradigm its illusory two-state solution, its impotent and complicit quartet, and its subjugation of international law to the dictates of presumed political expediency. Our positions must be unapologetically based on international human rights and international law. Two, clarity of vision. We must stop the pretense that this is simply a conflict over land or religion between two warding parties and admit the reality of the situation in which a disproportionately powerful state is colonizing, persecuting, and dispossessing an indig indigenous population on the basis of their ethnicity. Three, one state based on human rights. We must support the establishment of a single democratic secular state in all of historic Palestine with equal rights for Christians, Muslims, Jews, and therefore the dismantling of the deeply racist settler colonial project and an end to apartheid across the land. Four, fighting apartheid. We must redirect all UN efforts and resources to the struggle against apartheid, just as we did for South Africa in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Five, return and compensation. We must reaffirm and insist on the right of return and full compensation for all Palestinians and their families currently living in the occupied territories in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and in the diaspora across the globe. 
Sixth, truth and justice. We must call for a transitional justice process, making full use of decades of accumulated UN investigations, inquiries, and reports to document the truth and to ensure accountability for all perpetrators, redress for all victims, and remedies for documented injustices. Seven, protection. We must press for the deployment of a well-resourced and strongly mandated UN protection force with a sustained mandate to protect civilians from the river to the sea. Eight, disarmament. We must advocate for the removal and destruction of Israel's massive stockpiles of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, lest the conflict lead to the total destruction of the region and possibly beyond. Nine, mediation. We must recognize that the US and other Western powers are in fact not credible mediators, but actual parties to the conflict who are complicit with Israel and the violation of Palestinian rights, and we must engage them as such. 10, solidarity. We must open our doors and the doors of the Secretary General wide to the legions of Palestinian, Israeli, Jewish, Muslim, Christian human rights defenders who are standing in solidarity with the people of Palestine and their human rights and stop the unconstrained flow of Israel lobbyists to the offices of UN leaders where they advocate for continued war, persecution, apartheid, and impunity and smear our human rights defenders for their principled defense of Palestinian rights. This will take years to achieve and Western powers will fight as every step of the way. So we must be steadfast. In the immediate term, we must work for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the long-standing siege on Gaza. Stand up against the ethnic cleansing of Gaza, Jerusalem and the West Bank and elsewhere. Document the genocidal assault in Gaza. Help bring massive humanitarian aid and reconstruction to the Palestinians. Take care of our traumatized colleagues and their families and fight like hell for a principled approach in the UN's political offices. The UN's failure in Palestine thus far is not a reason for us to withdraw. Rather, it should give us the courage to abandon the failed paradigm of the past and fully embrace a more principled course. Let us boldly and proudly join the anti-apartheid movement that is growing all around the world, adding our logo to the banner of equality and human rights for the Palestinian people. The world is watching. We will all be accountable for where we stood in this crucial moment in history. Let us stand on the side of justice I thank you, High Commissioner Volker, for hearing this final appeal from my desk. I will leave the office in a few days for the last time after more than three decades of service, but please do not hesitate to reach out if I can be of any assistance in the future. Sincerely, Craig Mohaber. Damn, that's the guy they're getting rid of? No, he resigned. No, I know, but like, that's the guy who's not going to be around anymore? He resigned in protest. Yeah, he's not the only one. There's a State Department official who resigned over Biden's handling of the genocide in Gaza. The official was involved in the arms transfers of U.S. allies for 11 years. I am leaving today because I believe that in our current course with regards to the continued, indeed expanded and expedited provisions of lethal arms to Israel, I have reached the end of that bargain, he said. Over 100 congressional staffers staged a walkout in front of the Capitol, calling on representatives to work for a ceasefire. We've also seen actions of solidarity from certain states. Bolivia, shout out, huge shout out to Bolivia, who has cut all ties with Israel in repudiation and condemnation of the aggressive and disproportionate Israeli military offensive taking place in Gaza. Yes. South Africa, As Colombia, Chile, Honduras, Jordan, and Bahrain all recalled their ambassadors to Israel, but they did not go so as far as to cut all official ties. And I encourage all states to reevaluate their ties to this genocidal regime and cut ties with Israel. Israel needs to be made the pariah that it is. It cannot continue, we cannot continue to deal with it 
as if it is a normal state actor engaging in normal state behavior. It is not. It must be excluded. It must no longer have a seat at the table as an apartheid regime because apartheid is not consistent with humanity. And the Zionist ideology driving this apartheid is not consistent with humanity. And therefore, it must be dealt with as such. And Craig Mochaber's letter of resignation is the blueprint, is the template for the only way out of this the only way for a just future where Palestinians have rights and freedom on our land. That is the only way forward. We cannot afford to waste another day. In the last couple of days, there was one day where Israel killed 1,500 Palestinians and that one day alone. I mean, we can just talk about some of the good things that have come from the international community's response. Belgium wants to sanction Israel for Gaza bombings. Belgium's deputy prime minister called on the Belgian government on Wednesday to adopt sanctions against Israel and investigate the bombings of hospitals and refugee camps in Gaza. Oh yeah, isn't that so annoying how they'll always be like, Hamas leaders, they lead a life of luxury. They live in the lap of luxury. And that's why we bombed a refugee camp looking for them. I think it's important here to emphasize that one of the targets of the Israeli apartheid regime has been Palestinian refugee camps where families live. One of the largest massacres that took place was on the Jabalia refugee camp, the largest refugee camp in Gaza that is filled with people who were made refugees due to the creation of the state of Israel on top of their cities and villages in 1948, after which they were pushed into Gaza and they've lived in the Jabalia refugee camp ever since. And during this aggression, not only has the Jabalia refugee camp been bombed multiple times, but one of the particular attacks was six one-ton bombs, which were dropped on homes in the Jabalia refugee camp, creating a crater so deep that the drone footage of it was was enough to give me a panic attack they killed over a thousand people and then just a day later they were back bombing the same refugee camp they also bombed the nusayrat refugee camp multiple times killing multiple families all we're seeing out of the accounts of the citizen journalists is child after child after child, baby after baby after baby. And it's gotten to the point where when I see that they have been killed, I go at least they're in peace because the ones that are injured for which there is no treatment, my, my brain can't comprehend the pain and the torture that they're experiencing. I, I've gotten yeah. to the point where I see the dead as, oh, well, thank God they, they, they were killed. Because living is so much worse because that's what Zionism did to us. They made our lives a living hell. My family members yesterday, I just managed to reach the, speak to them today. She's pregnant six months and she has a child. They, my family is from the Gaza city. They already evacuated once to the south, but they were called back to go to the north because her husband works as a civil engineer. And because of all the airstrikes in the north, they needed him to help with the families and getting out of the rubble and they needed him to be in the north. So they went back to the north and they said, well, why does it matter anyway? The south is getting hit all the time with airstrikes. It's not like we're safer in the south. So they went back to the north. Yesterday, they were forced to walk on foot back to the south by the Israeli ground forces.
It took them hours to do so. They were prevented from taking any of their belongings, money, food, water. The Israeli occupation forces didn't let them take anything. They forced them to walk for hours as they walked behind them. At random moments, Palestinians in this mass movement of, of, of individuals who were being forcibly displaced yet again were being pulled out of the crowd, searched, harassed, tortured. And some certain individuals were pulled aside and they were executed in the mo right then and there. I haven't seen anyone reporting on this in the news, not a single news. I heard all of this because I got a text message from this family member after she lived this. They walked to Khan Yunus from the north of Gaza. It took them hours to do so. She's six months pregnant and she was holding her child. Women are now giving birth on the floors of UN schools with no medication. Some women are having cesarean sections with no anesthesia. Their bodies are being cut into multiple layers of skin, fat, tissue, muscle with no anesthesia because of the Israeli siege preventing medication. Newborns are being cut out of their mother's dead bodies to see if they have a chance to make it. And most of the time they don't. Doctors Without Borders spoke about the creation of a new phenomenon in Gaza, a, a term which has been coined, wounded child, no surviving family, of which they have documented hundreds, if not thousands of children, which now fit the bill. Wounded child, no surviving family. And that's a separate category from wounded child, unidentified child. We don't know who they are. Maybe their family's surviving, but we don't know who they are. So those, those are just assigned numbers and they're being taken care of in hospitals, which are no longer hospitals anymore because there's no medication, there's no fuel, there's no electricity. In the last month, we've seen some of the most horrific images that you cannot even imagine in your worst nightmare, things that are worse than, than scenes of, 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 of horror films. We all remember the boy without the face whose legs were blown off, who struggled to scream in anguish, who died a torturous death. In the early days of the aggression, I saw an infant whose head was split open in two. I saw a toddler whose stomach was outside of their body and who was being carried into a hospital and they were still alive. We've and seen actual beheaded babies. Multiple. Yesterday, I saw a toddler who was alive, who was stuck in the rubble and their leg was pinned in and, and, the, and the civil defense workers were trying to pull them out but they had to literally cut off the leg while the child was still alive. I posted it. Yep. All of this is there, though. The videos are all there. Yesterday, I saw a girl digging herself out of the rubble. These images are all there. They're all on Ion Palestine. They're all on the accounts of Mu'taz, Plestia, Bissan, Hind. They're all there. The public record is all there. And nobody in the mainstream corporate media is talking about them. Too hopeful about the filing. Look, um, I think that if if the prosecutor does not act, and there's going to be multiple yeah. more people that are going to call on them to do the same thing. And in fact, Reporters Without Borders already filed talking about like the killing of the journalists and stuff. Right, right, if they right. don't act in this moment, it will literally be the end of international humanitarian law. I understand, yeah. So that, that, that's, that's the stakes. If they want to throw away the, the entire international humanitarian legal system, then they don't act. But they, they are, their hand is going to be forced. They are not going to be able to avoid it, given the gravity of the crimes which have taken place. 
the governments, the individual governments, like the US and all of that, they can parrot their talking points. They can deny reality. They can live in this made up world where they're not looking at the actual facts and they're just regurgitating talking points despite being pressed with actual information and refuse to answer questions. They can do that. The, the, you know, the media can continue to lie and lie and lie and just regurgitate propaganda. But these institutions, if they fall into that, then it's the end of those institutions. Because these institutions, their sole purpose is to prevent genocide. So if they well, fail been. to prevent and to sanction the clearest case of genocide that we have seen in modern history, which has been documented in a way that no other genocide has been documented, then they cease to have a purpose to exist because the entire purpose, purpose for which they were created is to prevent genocide. Yeah, well, I'm no expert, but they've been doing a pretty bad job. And by the way, you can clip that and make that thing. Cause that, yeah, okay. That was fire, dude. Yeah. We got that little extra at the end. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. I'll send this to you Thank now. Thank you. Love you so much. You're doing such Love a great you. job. So proud of you. Bye. Bye. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Find our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have as good a day as you can. Do, 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 do,